Welcome to the Legal AF Podcast with your midweek anchors, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo, covering the intersection of law and politics in our nation's courthouses and hearing rooms. On today's pod, we discuss and analyze the plot to assassinate the president of Haiti and the indictment of at least 40 co-conspirators, both inside the U.S. and outside, and developments in that case in the Southern District of Florida. New developments in the prosecution and trial later this month of former powerhouse political lobbyist and attorney Michael Sussman, brought by the former Trump special prosecutor, and what it means for the Clinton campaign. And lastly, we'll discuss the decision by the judge overseeing the heart of the Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy trial against nine Oath Keepers to delay that trial in light of the Jan 6 special committee hearings in June. That's a lot to talk about. Speaking of the Jan 6 special committee hearings in June, Karen, you had a great idea about something that you, me, Ben, and others could do during a live feed of that. What was your idea? Yeah, we should sit there, watch it with everybody and do commentary. Obviously, we won't interrupt, but there's a lot of downtime. You know, one thing that that always strikes me when you watch a hearing uh, or you watch a trial, it's not like on Law and Order where things you, you, you have an entire trial in the span of 30 minutes and, and everything goes quickly. You know, if this is much more, uh, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of slow, you know, downtime where people are just talking or talking amongst themselves, et cetera. And so that's an opportunity for us to watch it with people and explain what's happening and explain sort of what everything means and put it into context. I think that's a great idea. You and I have both recently been on Tony Michael's show, the Tony FM podcast now on Midas Touch. And I, I think I think the brothers are talking about having him produce it and then uh, which I think is a great idea. So constant real time feed of the special committee. But rather than just watching it on MSNBC or one of these mainstream media, it would be, you know, the legal AF team contributing with with Tony. Uh, yeah, I, I did it with Tony for the analysis. Marjorie Taylor Greene yes. hearing. Yeah. And only 500,000 of your closest friends join you. That's all. <laughs> no, but so, it's interesting. It's very yeah. interesting. And, and in the live it, feed, people ask yeah, questions. It's, it's, there's an art to doing it. And I think you're starting to master it. And I'll pick it up, which is, you know, we want to be interactive. We want to we want to have it be an extension of what we do on Legal AF every week, that brand that people have come to expect and then imprint that onto the uh, the special committee hearing. So stay tuned. The audience should stay tuned and we'll have more details for that when once the Jan 6 committee hearings are announced for later in June. It has an impact on a story that we're going to cover later, which is the seditious conspiracy trial of the Oath Keepers and a motion that they made related to their trial. But let's kick it off with um, this very interesting case that's gotten very little press uh, mainstream. I'm kind of plugged into the Miami media for my career there. And the fact that I have an office in Miami and I have friends that are in the Haitian American community. And so as some people may know, but it's sort of fallen off the transom or fallen off the continuum of news. Last July 7th, 2021, the president of Haiti, uh, President Jovenel Moise was assassinated. Uh, It was a terrible, yet another terrible tragedy for the country of Haiti, they've suffered so much, both, you know, just natural disasters, yeah. start, starting with earthquakes to political disasters and corruption, which unfortunately has been a part of their history for, you know, a hundred years, leading to the assassination of their president. And the question was, who did it? It was a whodunit at the highest order. And were any Americans involved? And so now we're starting to see from the Department of Justice, their National Security Office, Um, and uh, division and prosecutors in the Southern District of Florida, who's involved and how big of a conspiracy this was. We have an indictment of John Joel Joseph, J.J. Joseph, a Haitian-American business person who they captured in Jamaica and had him extradited through a request back to the United States who made it of his first appearance in before a magistrate in the Southern District of Florida but he didn't do this on his own. He, Karen, you want to describe how many people were involved? And then we can talk about sort of extra, you know, this extradition and, and how we got from Jamaica to the United States and, and, and what are the next steps the Department of Justice has announced? 
Yeah, so this is a sweeping indictment of, I think, 40 people, 20 Colombians and a bunch of other people who were involved in this this plot to kill. Uh, they're charged with conspiracy to commit murder, not necessarily the actual murder um, of the of the president. But, you know, the first thing I asked myself when I saw this is how do we have how does the United States have both jurisdiction and venue? over this matter and so what's know, for, the difference between those two things so the way i always it's i always it's one of those things that you sort of have to ask yourself and have a little kind of reminder in your mind is what's what is the difference and jurisdiction is does what court has jurisdiction over the matter and venue is what location what place you know what what city state so so the first one is which court has the power to render decisions correct about a matter a person a a case that that we call jurisdiction venue is location it's basically location. where 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 does it happen right. and so this was a the, so the jurisdiction here would be federal court and the venue is florida and my question to myself when i was reading this is how the hell does the united states of america have jurisdiction over the assassination of a Haitian president by Haitians and Colombians. I mean, because that's essentially what this is. And you would say to yourself, well, isn't this something that should be prosecuted by Haiti? <laughs> you know, that that makes the most sense. That makes the most logical sense. And so I went and I and I, I sort of did a little digging and and in the press release announcing this, uh, these charges, the Department of Justice May, dropped a line in there that said they flew to Florida and flew back to Haiti at one point in the course of their conspiracy because they had to establish there's jurisdiction. Well, and let, then there's well let's the go venue. over that one. Let's go over that one. So for our listeners and followers who don't know, there is a very vibrant um, and um, proud Haitian community that has been in Miami for 75 plus years, if not more. They are very involved with the politics of South Florida in a positive way. They contribute as good citizens to the business community, to the political community. Um, some of them are judges. Um, have, you know, the first federal judge, um, Haitian, came came out of Miami. So there's a long and proud history of Haitians in South in South Florida. There's also tension between the Haitian American community and the US government over immigration policy because the Haitian community is not generally granted the same types of rights and privileges and benefits that's, that, for, that for instance, the Cuban community is granted, which is a much more powerful and stronger uh, political uh, powerhouse in Florida. So, but but that's that. So this, this, these flights back and forth between, you know, um, you know, Haiti. Port-au-Prince, you know, their main, their main capital, their airport, and Miami, this goes on every day. So business people will have a foot in both places. And the, the thing that you're talking about that I think is, is what's in the indictment is that they act, speaking of corrupt uh, court systems, everybody's complaining about our court system. Wait till you hear what happened in Haiti. These co-conspirators went to Haiti, convinced the judge to give them a, an arrest warrant for the president of Haiti, because it started as a kidnapping plot and it turned into an assassination when they killed him. So they get this judge who's corrupt, apparently, to give them an arrest warrant. This guy, J.J. Joseph, takes the arrest warrant, flies to Miami to meet with other co-conspirators and other people, shows them the arrest warrant. And that is the jurisdictional hook that you're talking about, right, Karen? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, maybe we're doing it because it's such a corrupt judicial system that's involved in this particular case. And maybe that's why it's appropriate. And he's facing life, you know, if he gets convicted here. But it was interesting. I, I was I was kind of, again, doing some digging and I saw some Jamaican press. Hopefully, I don't know how accurate this is, but what they said was that he ended up bribing people to get to Jamaica and then he tried to bribe people with millions of dollars in Jamaica, the police, to try to keep him hidden. And he ultimately was arrested along with his wife and children, I think one of which is an adult, and was extradited to the United States to face charges here. But he was hoping to just fade off into, into the, you know. Jamaican sunset. The, the, yeah. beautiful, the beautiful beaches of Jamaica. <laughs> 
who doesn't like those? But but the um, I think I also read that that the the wife and the kids are trying to get asylum yeah. in Jamaica, and it, and it hasn't yet been connected. In your career as a prosecutor at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, were you involved with any extradition type matters where you're making a request um, to a foreign country? That, yes, that, many. For which, yeah. So talk a little bit about that with the, the process of that, the, you know, are there treaties? Are there intergovernmental agreements? What What is the foundation for the U.S. to send a letter request to another country, hopefully a friendly country or a treaty a treaty participant country and say, hey, you got a bad guy, a bad guy defendant on your soil or, or person, you know, please send them to us for prosecution. So it's complicated. So not all countries are the same and every country is different. And some countries, for example, will not ever extradite. And extradite means send you to face charges to another jurisdiction. Some countries won't won't extradite foreign their own nationals. So if you're a citizen of that country and you're accused of a crime, you get safe haven in, in your country. So a big um, an example of a famous example of that is Rowan Polanski was indicted and charged with sexual assault in the United States. And he fled to France where he is a um, French citizen and he's never faced charges because he uh, you know, they won't extradite him. He's also now landlocked in France and can't leave because the minute he steps out, there's he could be arrested on what's called a red notice and brought to face charges uh, in this country. And that happens to a lot of a lot of people who are charged and who are citizens in their in their country. Um, but that's not all countries. Some some countries ha- will say certain charges will extradite and certain charges we won't. Certainly the more serious charges, typically they'll extradite their their citizens, but misdemeanors and things like that, they won't. And or you know, or, or if or if their country doesn't recognize that crime or the punishment yes. that we're about to, you know, if we're like, OK, that particular crime that's life in prison or that's death penalty and the country doesn't recognize a death penalty or doesn't find that crime to be as serious, isn't it the case sometimes they won't extradite on that basis? Absolutely. But, you know, we're the same, by the way. So so, for example, let's say it's a crime in China to talk badly about your government and Mm -hmm. or North Korea or somewhere, you know, and let's say a United States citizen travels to one of those places and says something bad about or they don't even travel. They just say something bad about about those governments and and they get um, an arrest warrant for them and they try to extradite them. Well, the United States is not going to send one of our you know, someone who's here to face charges like that in somewhere like North Korea. I mean, you know, so there are lots of it it sort of goes both ways, you know, where where um, we want to protect our people from from bad laws or or laws that we don't recognize and vice versa. And so what happens is you you enter into these treaties, you know, and there's the Hague Convention. And, you know, some some uh, countries will sign on to that and some don't. And um, and if you do sign on to it, you agree to certain rules and procedures when it comes to whether it's prosecution or service of process in a civil matter. I mean, there's there's sort of different treaties that govern different uh, different countries. And and like I said, some have signed on and some have not. And, and when you want to extradite someone from another country, you have to familiarize yourself with whatever uh, whatever. Um, um, document and whatever agreement exists, and then you make a request through the United States government. You know, local prosecutor would make a, a request through the Department of Justice, and mm-hmm. and you know, then you prepare the documents necessary to um, request extradition, and then the Department of Justice would may or may not. Um, depending on the, all sorts of considerations, including diplomatic relations, right? You know, there might be a, dipl- a diplomatic reason not to um, seek extradition of a particular type of crime or a particular person. But so I'll, I'll tell you a case in the Manhattan DA's office, and I, I've sort of lost track of, of whether this individual was extradited or not ultimately because um, I left. But there was a Jamaican, um, someone in Jamaica, a Jamaican national who was um, in 
indicted for terrorism related charges. And there was a extradition um, request. It was granted. And so then we went into an extradition proceeding in Jamaica and the uh, individual can either agree to extradition or not. So if they agree to extradition, um, then they come quickly to the United States. If they don't, then there's a whole legal procedure that goes on in that country and you have to prove, you have to show certain types of proof and there's discovery and a judge will ultimately rule on whether the person can go face charges in that jurisdiction. And when they come to the country, Let's say, let's say you extradite someone on five charges, you know, let's say you murder and conspiracy and something else. Let's say once you investigate the case, you discover new charges. You can't add new charges without permission of like, in other words, that mm -hmm. person That's was extradited on those particular charges and on this particular indictment. And that's what you are able to um, hold them on and prosecute them with. So there's the, there's a whole that, kind of that's very interesting. I didn't realize you'd almost have to get the cooperation of the host country if you're going to supersede your indictment with new charges. That's interesting. I had never, and that's something that never gets covered. Well, this this was a great kind of um, entryway into extradition and your and your background and experience. Plus, frankly, I think it's a case that is on so many levels, including all the ones that you outlined about U.S. involvement in international plots and international mm -hmm. intrigue um, and, and why. And, 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 th and this is another good reason we live in this country, because we are willing, our Justice Department is willing to track down bad people that even have, who even put a little toe in the sand of the United States to give them, to give us territorial jurisdiction um, and to prosecute them because others won't. You know, Haiti would probably love to, but a lot of its justice system is 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 corrupt and compromised. And who else is going to do it if we don't? So once again, it's the United States being the policeman under a let's do a plug for the politics under a democratic regime. I'm not sure this gets done if the Republicans control, you know, the executive branch, for instance, because many of these things didn't happen because that was not the focus of that particular president whose name I will not speak. So, all right, so that's that's the law of extradition. That's what's going on with J.J. Joseph and the plot to assassinate and ultimately kill the president of Haiti. Let's move on to something closer to home, really close to home and politics, which is the prosecution of Michael Sussman, a, I keep saying former, you know, a former political powerhouse lobbyist and lawyer with one of the leading um, lobby connected law firms in the United States, sitting in Washington, Perkins Coy. Uh, it's also where Mark Elias, who's very popular on the internet and on his Twitter feed practice practices. He was a partner of Michael Sussman's. And, you know, to bring everybody up to speed, there is a special prosecutor who was appointed by Bill Barr and Donald Trump and our president, the president of the United States and his wisdom, his judgment decided to keep the special prosecutor in place who is investigating the Russian collusion uh, factors from 2016 and whether the Clinton campaign was involved or not involved. And, and they've indicted, you know, after six years of, pro of investigation, they've indicted a total of three people. One person for lying um, and conjuring up some emails that got a search warrant against an aide of Donald Trump, Carter Page. Um, another person who did something else. And then, you know, this is their big fish, I guess, after six years of an investigation, Michael Sussman. And what is he, what has he been indicted for? One thing, that he went to the FBI and he goes to the FBI like all the time for other, other matters and other clients. But this one, he said he was just being a good citizen, that they had some national security information and intel that he wanted to share with them demonstrating a link between at least Trump Tower, which is the building that Donald Trump resides in on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and a Russian bank, okay? And that they had some data, he didn't say from where, but he had sort of a white paper, a dossier that he, that he wanted to give to the FBI. And he actually met with the general counsel, the head lawyer for the FBI, and he presented this information. And either the the, the Topic of who Michael was representing 
as a lawyer, because you know usually you have a client if you're a lawyer, or not, either wasn't really discussed or it was just implied that Michael was there to provide this information to the FBI and they can take it wherever they want to take it. The, the perjury or lying under oath or lying to an official charge that's been charged, a false statement charge, is that he did not reveal that he was really working for a client and the client was the camp, the, the Clinton campaign. Which, by the way, it is. If you go on, if you went on the website at the time, they weren't hiding the fact that they represented the Clinton campaign. So, how the FBI general counsel could be uh, mistaken and yeah, have a this feels like this feels like an acquittal to me. I this is so not going to be a conviction. Do you see him getting convicted for that? I, I mean, well, let's let's okay. It, I think it depends on what evidence is allowed to be presented, which brings us to the recent development from two days ago, Judge Chris Cooper. An Obama appoint, appointee, a very, very good judge in the D.C. Circuit, who's been who's been supervising this prosecution. Uh, we've talked about him on the pod, on the weekend pod with Ben Mysalis before and developments there. Had a motion in limine, a motion to limit evidence presented by the defense. It was actually he, both. There was. Well, that's I, true. I, yeah, there were there were this was a joint sort of everyone yeah. put all their motions in limine together and he ruled the decision was was on both both right. of theirs. And the prosecutors want to put on a big show to show that Michael Sussman, the lawyer, was in a conspiracy with the Clinton campaign, operatives of the Clinton campaign and a data collection company to try to tie Trump to Russia and do a Russian collusion. And they want to put on that case. And the and the defense doesn't want that case put on. The defense is like, you got me on one charge of lying under oath or lying to, a, to to the FBI. What does that have to do with the conspiracy? I haven't been charged with conspiracy. So why are you putting on a conspiracy case? But the judge did a very interesting thing. So tell I know everybody's on the edge of their seat. Karen, based on the judge's ruling, are the FBI going to be able to put on at least some sort of case about the involvement of the Clinton campaign in this uh, uh trying to collect evidence against Trump related to Russia. Yes or no? Mostly no. So the judge was a little, you know, I'll allow a little bit of this. I'll allow a little bit of that. But basically, no, he said he's not going to allow this to turn into a mini trial, a trial within a trial to see whether or not the um, there was this conspiracy and this sort of, you know, it's conspiracy between uh, Hillary Clinton and um, the DNC and Sussman and, and all of these other individuals uh, to, um, you know, to, to create this connection with Russia and the Russian collusion. You know, interestingly, I had to remind myself, I had to go back, you know, you know, that that law, that lawsuit that Donald Trump dropped last month, where he basically sued everyone under the sun for yeah. every grievance he, he's ever had. Who's it's in there? Perkins Coy, the law yeah. firm and Michael Sussman. It's all about this. So yeah. really, the judge here had to limit this if for no other reason than if if the special prosecutor, John, John Durham, is allowed to have this trial within a trial and, and create this evidence of conspiracy. He's almost proving the civil case for Donald Trump. I mean, you, you he couldn't allow that to happen here. And it's also a distraction. He's not. What, what's the point? It's either he lied or he didn't lie. And 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 if you want to charge him with conspiracy, then charge him with conspiracy, you know, if, if that's what he did. But clearly that didn't happen. So so the decision kind of went into that whole kind of kind of why he's allowing it, why he's not allowing it. And um, there's a lot of discussions about joint, whether there was a joint venture. It's interesting because they go back and forth between the word conspiracy and the word joint venture. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of I don't know why he goes back and forth. I know that I know the federal rule that controls conspiracy uses that terminology. And maybe that's why that it talks about that. Um, but it but it was interesting that I guess conspiracy to me has more of a nefarious has more of a nefarious sound to it. And joint venture could be a business deal. Right, joint <laughs> venture know? sounds like you and I are going to open yeah. an ice cream parlor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So so I guess in that way, it's sort of it's sort of um, made me feel that the judge you know, that, that this was like a joint enterprise, um, you know, that that's kind of irrelevant that, you know, cause if, that it wasn't really like this, this conspiracy, 
Yeah, except in one way. I, you know, it was a very, uh, if you hear me saying this, you know, it's complicated. It was a very interesting, but complicated decision. And it didn't always go exact. It started to take turns at places where I thought, okay, he's making that decision yes. that they're not allowed to put on that evidence. But he did say in the middle of the, and we'll post it on the, here's a little plug for the Twitter community, Legal AF Twitter community, which is now almost a thousand strong after two weeks, we're doing great. And we're posting, you, me, Ben, we're posting information about the cases that we're talking about. Some things that don't make the cut for the podcast, but are still interesting. We put them there. If we talk about a case, we try to put a link to the case or to the the, the order and I'll, I'll post this particular decision there. But he said at one, the Judge Cooper said at one point, there are competing narratives that each side want to put on at the trial about the evidence. The, the prosecution wants to say that the, the um, Alpha, which is the name of the bank in Russia, Alpha Bank data that is presented by Sussman to the FBI, which is the heart of the false statement in prosecution, came from opposition research that was um, ordered and coordinated by the Clinton campaign and and Sussman knew that when he and, and knew about the campaign, knew about the collection of the data and how it was collected. And then knowing all of that, took it to the FBI and lied when he didn't tell the FBI the source of the information that it really came back to the Clinton campaign. That's what the prosecution wants to say. And the defense, the defensive view is completely different, as most trials are, especially criminal ones. The defense said, no, the data collection company and this guy, uh, Joff, Rodney Joffe, was a key to the case, apparently. Um, and whether he testifies or not, we'll talk about next. Rodney Jaffe did it on his own. He's a Democrat and he went and did the data collection of what they call this uh, DNS uh, data showing uh, communication traffic, not the actual substance of the communication, but but like pings and points between Alpha Bank and something yeah, or someone. Like IP, the, like IP address yeah. from Trump Tower right. to Alpha Bank right. in Russia. So they see traffic. Like they yeah. see traffic. They see cars. They just don't know what's in the cars. Um, and that was the evidence that was presented. So the defense says, no, Jaffe did it on his own. He happened to be a client of Perkins Coy anyway. He went there to get his own advice about what to do it. Sussman met with him along with Mark Elias and hearing the information, Sussman as a citizen, patriot citizen, took the information to the FBI. So there wasn't the contact that between the Clinton campaign and Sussman. That the judge said is the competing worldviews. He also said, however, Karen, I think the jury should be able to hear both of those views. I'm just going to limit the amount of evidence and witnesses that either side. So the, it sounds to me like the prosecution in opening is going to be able to talk about the Clinton campaign, the data company, Sussman, Elias, and how this got to the FBI and how the FBI was misled. So we're going to hear a lot. And of course, in the Twitterverse, and social media, it's going to be, aha, Hillary Clinton, she's involved. And, you know, she helped you know, steal information from the, from the president of the United States. So I, I, I was hoping that the, the Judge Cooper would like shut the door to that because that really, unless he's charged with conspiracy, what are we doing? But he's going to allow these competing narratives to be presented. What do you think I about mean, that? I Look, I think I think that basically the, re the reason I think this is going to be an acquittal is because I think both things are true. I think he both was widely known as representing Hillary Clinton. And it's not like he was hiding that. Right. right so right. why would he have to disclose that? Right. It would be, you know, it would be like it, I can't even think of a, a good example, but, you know, there's no reason to say it because it was widely known and he's dealt with them many, 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 many times. So I think he probably both worked for them, but also felt like, oh, no, I have this information and I want to be a good Samaritan and provide it. Like you can have both motivations yeah. at the same it, it time. Would be, to, to, to your point, it would be like if Rudy Giuliani, when he was when he was bar, he had his bar license during the heyday, went in to make a pitch about Donald Trump or his opponent. Who would not know that Giuliani was there right. doing the as a henchman for Donald Trump? Right. But he also could be reporting what he thinks genuinely right. is you know, some, a matter of important national security. It, like in right. other words, you can have two motivations. It doesn't necessarily, um, 
I, I just don't see how that makes you lying to the FBI. And by not saying it, unless unless he was asked outright, do you represent them? And is that why you're here? And if, you know, is anyone paying you to be here? And if he said, absolutely not, I'm here because, you know, being a good Samaritan. Which also could turned, be true. And, but it, be and, true. And I was going to say, and it turns out, though, that there's like a check that in the in the right. memo section says to go talk to the FBI <laughs> about the right. data. You know no, what he I mean? Bill, he has billing records. It says yeah, billing met, records, right. met with FBI yeah, general yeah. counsel for Clinton campaign today. Exactly. So if that if they have evidence like that, that's one thing. But if not, if if what if it's the way I'm sort of seeing it, they must not have that. They must not have that evidence because they're doing the whole, you know, we need this email. Yeah, we need. Yeah, we need the email. We need the Clinton campaign to be on. And the other last interesting thing in the decision um, is this whole fight of interesting fight. I want to get your take as ex prosecutor between the prosecution and the defense over Rodney Jaffe. Yeah. So, jo- so Jaffe, it looks like the prosecution, I can't tell if they want him to testify, but if they want him to testify- No, I think the defense wants him to testify. Right, That's but what- they want, yeah, the defense wants him to testify. But it's weird because the prosecution could use him to establish the link with Sussman. Sussman wants to use Jaffe to establish that there isn't a link between Jaffe and the Clinton campaign that Sussman would have known about at the time. And that's not how he got the data presented to him. But the the defense is complaining to the judge. The prosecution won't give Jaffe immunity. So he's taking the Fifth Amendment. So they're gagging one of our key witnesses. So they asked the judge for the extraordinary remedy of having, and I I never really thought about this, the judge could do this, the judge granting him immunity, even the prosecution won't, in order to allow him to testify. I thought that was, I don't know if you've ever been involved with a case where the judge- I've never seen it. Right. And the judge said, no, Um, it's an extraordinary thing for me rather than the prosecutor to grant immunity. And even though I get why you want this witness to testify, I'm not doing that. I I don't think in my career I've ever been involved with a matter or heard about a matter where, and, and I guess they have that power, where the judge in the black robe makes a decision on immunity or not. I guess it makes sense. But yeah, it's usually I, the process. I never knew. I never knew they yeah. had that authority. Yeah. Very interesting. So we'll keep an eye on what's going to go on with Michael Sussman. That trial is going to be later this month. And um, you can expect the other side of the aisle to make a lot of hay out of it because of the involvement of the Clinton campaign, at least in uh, some of the evidence that's going to be presented. Well, speaking of um, trials of the century, let's go to the uh, Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy trial. Uh, with Elmer Stewart Rhodes. I had forgotten his name was Elmer, um, the one-eyed leader of the Oath Keepers. The who, Yale Law grad. That's I know, what I you, can't get over. You love that one. He's because went I to just, Yale. Because I can't believe it. Just to me. Do you know people went that went to Yale Law? I do. I do. <laughs> I do. And they don't. And, and you know, he's also an <laughs> army parent. I guess that's the thing. He's a former Yale Law graduate. He was an army paratrooper. I mean, these are people I respect in the world, right? I I respect ex-military people that, and I respect people who go to Ivy League institutions typically. And so to me, to to read about this and what he's done and what he believes in is just such a fall from, not just fall from grace, but just a fall from like logic. And I, I just, it blows, it actually blows my mind. I don't understand it. So we've talked about in prior podcasts, both here and on the weekend edition, that there's now been three leading members of the Oath Keepers, not not little periphery people, key people in the Oath Keepers who have pled guilty, cut a deal with the government to seditious conspiracy and are cooperating with the government, including the one that Ben and I talked about last week, William Wilson, who was literally the tip of the tip of the spear. He was the first Oath Keeper who, who stormed the Capitol. And we find out Interestingly, the day he was indicted, it was the day that he pled guilty, meaning he's been cooperating with the government for quite some time. He's going to testify um, that he was in the room when Stuart Rhodes made a phone call to an unknown source who seemed to be connected to the Trump campaign and asked to speak. And with Stuart Rhodes asked to speak to Trump directly to get him to order Stuart Rhodes to execute the plan to use the Oath Keepers to violently and with arms, because they all had a, a weapons cache um, at a hotel in, in uh, the Phoenix Hotel in Washington, to, to, to have Trump order them 
to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And 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 Wilson's going to testify that when this person, this shadowy deep throat character that hasn't yet been named, said that we're not going to put you on the phone, Stuart, with Donald Trump, that Rhodes was like pissed off, annoyed that he you know he didn't get the order from the commander in chief to insurrect and overthrow the country. Key witness. So now we got the trial. The, you know, these are all the cooperating witnesses. Now we got the trial. And basically there's nine oath keepers who have been charged with the highest charge, seditious conspiracy. <laughs> this is funny. They don't have a courthouse big enough to try all nine at the same time. They have, they have a courthouse big enough. They have a courtroom big enough for six. Six. So, so they're going to they split the group in half and they were going to have the first trial be um, in, uh, I think, July. And the defense brought a motion before Judge Amit Mehta, an Obama appointee who's been supervising this and many other Gen 6 cases. Uh, and they said, look, we think that our clients will be, you know, and the jury will be severely negatively impacted against our client and prejudiced against our client if the trial is on the heels of the Jan 6 special committee, you know, must watch TV in June. It's too close. And and the judge listened to them. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear your I want to hear your view on that. The judge listened to them and said, all right, I already split off the other group, the other four. I think they split into five and four. The other four I'm already doing in November. I'll move you guys to September, September. Right. Which will get you over. And then the others, the defense jumped up because they, they wanted more. He also said, I'll do it if only the defense gives me a commitment that except for an extraordinary circumstance that, that we don't know about right now, don't come back in here and ask me for any more time to move this case. I'm not going to do it. He, even, he actually, you're he actually laughing. said, Give the quote. He said, it's a great quote. It's a great quote. Yeah. Even if 435 members of Congress are reading the January 6th <laughs> committee report on the courthouse steps, you're not going to get a continuance beyond September. Yeah. If that I is love, not I, I love, crystal I love judge, clear. I, I love Judge Mehta because what, and, and I just as take a half a step backwards, the defense was saying, great, thanks, Judge. Thanks for recognizing the hearing. But there's going to be the report the published report, you know, it's going to be you, you can imagine. I remember the one from Whitewater and I remember the one from the uh, Trump, um, uh, I almost said treason, the Trump impeachment hearings. And, it, you know, it's like, you know, for those that are not watching, it's like five phone books thick. That's going to be published. We're going to be able to all get a copy of it. And they're saying, well, judge, it's going to be a published report to which the judge says, I don't care if they read that report on the courthouse steps. I'm not giving you any more time. So it looks like that group, including Stuart Rhodes, is going to go in September. The second group is going to go in November. The judge says, I get you all want to be tried together, but I can't do it physically. So I'm not going to be able to do it. So we're going to split this case in half. And that's not any kind of due process you know, problem. You know, I love, you know, the government can decide to try nine separate cases if they wanted to. The, the, the Sixth Amendment doesn't say you get to all be tried together. So I don't see there's any problem with that. What What did you think about the decision? Um, do you think it's the right thing to do? Or should we just get this trial over with in September, in, in June as planned or July as planned? I mean, so the thing you have to worry about in high profile cases is the jury pool and whether the defendant's going to get a fair trial, because if the defendants don't get a fair trial, then all you're doing is buying yourself a reversible error and then you have to try it again. So you have to make sure that you can uh, for for. You know, in a, in, a, in a high profile case, it, you can have a little bit of a circus going on with media attention and et cetera. And so I do think it was smart of the judge to move it and put a little a little daylight and a little distance between the hearings because they're going to be widely covered. Everyone's going to know about it, especially, you know, especially in D.C. And I just think the jury pool, it, it, they're going to have to be voir dired on this question. So they're going to be asked about how much of this. Did you, did you watch any of the hearings? Did you follow it closely? Did you read the reports? And um, that won't automatically be grounds to be um, um, to uh, I'm losing, losing for some reason. I can't I can't think of the word. 
challenged. <laughs> it won't be right. a for cause challenge um, to, to of be the juror, uh, off the case of the, juror. of the jurors. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, and during jury selection, you have challenges and that's not going to be for cause challenges because you know about it. But they'll ask, can you be fair? Um, but there's also what's known as peremptory challenges. And those are the challenges that the lawyers get to make that are discretionary. And they're just going to want to know. And I, I would imagine um, that one side or the other is going to make a calculation. If you're somebody who followed the January 6th committee very closely, you might be someone that you'd want as a juror or you don't want as a juror, you know, and you'll have various opinions about that one way or another. But either way, you're going to have to um, get people who can be fair and impartial despite the media attention. And you're going and and during the trial, you can't look at media reports and you can't watch the news and you can't read anything or do your own research about the particular you know matter, the subject matter that's going on. And that'll be hard to do if the hearings are going on in the moment and the report comes out right away because all the news will be about that. And so if you, you want to have a little distance so that the, the jury won't inadvertently see things about the trial that aren't sort of in the news or won't be influenced by it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. They don't, they don't really do this as much anymore, but the old days of sequestering, sequestering the jury yeah. where you put them in a hotel, put blinders on them, take away all their devices. <clears throat> I mean, that's really reserved for the most rarest of circumstances. And as a defense lawyer, we generally don't want sequestering because that usually pisses the jury off and they want to render a decision quickly. Sometimes they punish the prosecution, but a lot of times they punish the defense. And that's a wild card that a lot of defense lawyers, because that's a solution. Well, if you're worried about the report and I could always put the jury up in a hotel, a flea bag hotel up the street from the courthouse, you know, the judge could threaten that. Um, and then make his decision. But you rarely see that. I don't know if you've ever been in a case where you've actually had a sequestered jury. I have, but years and that was many years ago, yeah. back, back in the old days. And it was, yeah. you know, only for a homicide. It was not it was it was reserved for very, very rare yeah. and mo the most serious cases. But they they don't really do that anymore. Right. Like 12 angry men. I wish they bring, you know, <laughs> put them all, make them sit there for the whole time. But they I, don't look, sequester I, them, but they do admonish that the judge will yes. say you can't. You, you, there's a whole jury charge around. Yeah. Don't if, don't talk to anyone about the case. Don't do any research about the case. Don't read any articles about and it. If they don't, could, if they get caught, they get caught. It's a crime. And they'll be brought before the judge. Themselves. I've been involved with that, where the where the jury has done something they weren't supposed to do. Um, and then they get brought up in front of the judge and possibly investigated. And there's another, yeah. you know, crime within a crime going on there. But the fascinating, fascinating story. Stuart Rhodes, listen, from what from the three and O record so far of the Department of Justice against Gen six insurrectionists and the just sheer volume. I mean, it's just a target rich environment, no pun intended, of evidence, recorded video, social media, photos, family members, all testifying in one way or the other against the nine co-conspirators. If anybody's guilty, I'm sorry to, you know, we live in a country where everybody's presumed innocent, but if anybody is guilty of this crime, it's the Oath Keepers. I know. Well, had, we got that of the Michigan Wolverines, too, by the way. So if, uh, and Rhodes is going to testify, he said, uh, if 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 the Department of Justice loses any aspect of the Stuart Rhodes prosecution, I will eat. I'm pointing to it. I will eat the map painting behind me. <laughs> it, I mean, there's no effing way Stuart Rhodes goes out a free man. And the interesting thing we will end it on this, Karen. The interesting thing from all of the chatter from the defense lawyers in and around the hearing before Judge Maida is that in a, I guess in a very cocky way, the defense lawyer for Stuart Rhodes says, and he's definitely taking the stand. Yeah. I, I mean, Stuart, well, which is what I said with Ben on the weekend edition. I said, this is, this is just a show trial, not for the government, but for Stuart Rhodes. He knows he's going down. He knows he's going to prison for up to 20 years. He wants to go in as a martyr and, and, and his rep and his, whatever you think his re reputation is, we think it's delusional, but in his mind, he's a patriot and he wants his day in yeah. court. He, well, he's going to get it and he's going to end up with a, with an orange jumpsuit with a chain around his waist. Yeah. And, and that's going mean, to be the end of Stuart Rhodes the for 20 the, years. The, the Oath Keepers really feel like they are doing 
a patriot, their patriotic duty by maintaining the oath that they took when they were, they're all former law enforcement or military, and they took an oath to protect and serve. And, and they feel like they're continuing that. And they're basically these armed vigilantes who, you know, go out and protect the, you know, they, the, during the, they, they're anti-Black Lives Matter, they're anti-Islamic uh, yeah. terror, you know, Islamic people and open borders. I mean, you know, all the all the kind of we, dog we've whistle. always had yeah. we've always this is the exact same DNA we've always had in this country, starting with the Ku Klux Klan. This is basically just the Ku Klux Klan white supremacist movement dressed up with the American flag to protect our country. They share identical values. They really are on the, they're on the same websites. They're on the same dark web. They believe the same bullshit. If you ask Stuart Rhodes, do you think Jews uh, flew planes or missiles into, into the twin towers on nine 11, he'll say, yes. I I mean, this is the, the um, dark, darkest, darkest, disgusting underbelly of America that unfortunately, whether you called it nativism back in the 18th and 19th century, all the way through the rise of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War to the, the Tea I was called the Teapot Movement, the, the, the Tea Party Movement. It's all, the, 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 they're all branches of the same racist, misogynist tree. And, and they just dress themselves up with different uniforms and, and sheets and hats and, and all the rest of it. But they're the same as the Charlottesville neo-Nazis, it's the same effing group. It's just they just wear a different hello, my name is tag on the day that they go to some event. That's it. The meetings yeah. are the same. They're always in the woods. I'm sure there's a cross burning nearby. Uh, you know, so let's 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 rip off. That's one of the reasons these these prosecutions are so important to the integrity and to the continuity of our republic, because it rips the mask off of these people as they try to inch their way into mainstream using social media as the conduit for that. They, the KKK wants to be mainstream. The neo-Nazis want to be mainstream. They change their names. They change their titles. They, they, they have these fancy social media platforms to suck unsuspecting people down that, down that rabbit hole. But they are what they are. They are vile, racist, neo-Nazi conspiracy theory people and they're just today, We today they're the Oath Keepers. Tomorrow right. they're the First Amendment Praetorians. They're the KKK. They're the John Birch Society. You name it, that's the group. And so you, me, Ben, and others that help produce the Legal AF podcast have made it our now life mission to talk about these cases in a factual way without blowing smoke or sunshine to bring it to the attention of the American people so that our audience can take those facts and can go debate them in the streets and with their family and on the internet and on social media, armed, not with not with weapons, the weapons of the mind, with facts and analysis that you and I provide, and with Ben as well. So that's where we are. What do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. No, look, I agree with you. The, these guys are really the more I the more I sort of dug into it the scarier they are. I mean, this is, these are the Timothy McVeigh's, you know, these are our homegrown people who we really have to worry about. And really they're not just sort of blowing off steam and, you know, whatever they like to say. I mean, these are people who truly believe in what they say. They think they're doing some kind of, it's their, it's their mission. It's their duty, but they're, and they're anti-everybody. I mean, even Republicans, they don't even like, you know, they call them rhinos, you know, Republicans in name only and John McCain. I mean, even they're not far right enough to them and there's orders that they won't obey, you know, they, and they just basically, they believe in, in their guns is, are very important to them. And um, and they believe there's this conspiracy for a new world order that that everyone's conspiring with the you know the Chinese and the Mexicans and the Islamic terrorists and the Jews. It's always the Jews. It's always the Jews. The Rothschilds. The yeah. I know. So there's this this giant sort of new world order conspiracy that are they're being forced into. And, and, you know, we're opening the borders and Mexican drug cartels are coming in. And, you know, that this is just the narrative that they that they have. And they are 
it's scary. And so they view themselves though, as this, but it's more than just words. They view themselves as these protectors. And so they go and they, and they kind of go and, and, protect groups that they think need protecting. And, and one of them was on January 6th, you know, they thought they were, and you saw what happened there, you know, they tried to, they were part of this group that tried to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power and, and, and the, you know, the, um, you know, the whole Jan 6 riot, basically an insurrection. So, so they're, they're not, they're, they're scary people who are capable of very, very dangerous things. And I think we, we can't ever become numb to it. We can't ever become sort of, you know, like, like whitewash this, you know, to, to use, a, you know, cause they are white, but this is a very dangerous group and they're, they're as dangerous, if not more dangerous than any other group out there. Uh, and and yeah. we need to keep an eye on it. I'll, and and I'll tell people, I'll tell people one place to go and I'll post it in the legal IF Twitter community. The Southern poverty law center has been following extremist organizations since I was a child and they have a very good website. Uh, which is, um, let me see which one they're using these days. Um, I'll post it. I want to make sure I have the actual um, website that they use. But the Southern Poverty Law, here it is. It's www.splcenter.org, Southern Poverty Law Center. So splcenter.org. And if you want to go on there right now, they'll show you all the hate groups that they're monitoring, all the extremists that they're monitoring, where they reside, how many there are, what their names are. And that's been going on since Julian Bond and others founded the Southern Poverty Law Center in 1971. And, um, you know, they don't get as much press as they used to. They used to be, they'd always be on, you know, social media and they'd be on network television and be interviewed about it. And they're not getting as much as they used to. I don't know what's going on there with their funding, but they are a 501c4 organization, I think, and they take donations. It's somebody that we support. I'm going to post them, Southern Law, Southern Poverty Law Center for and for all the monitoring they do of the extremist groups. Um, this 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 show always takes. Uh, we know what we're going to talk about in terms of topics, but but it, it I talked about it as a river, a conversation river, and it takes twists and turns and meanders in good ways, um, in some ways that are unexpected, and, and I think our audience appreciates it. So, Karen, thank you for doing this again as my illustrious co-anchor on the midweek edition. Um, we've ended it. Um, we're going to be on YouTube and Facebook for the video version. We we uh, tweet the live. Um, podcast that we uh, that we have tonight on our Legal AF Midas Touch Twitter feed. And then, of course, you pull the audio podcast, which is really important to keep this movement, movement going, to uh, subscribe. It's free to follow and listen and download on all the places you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and the rest. And so, Karen, any concluding words? Great to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Always great to see you and shout out to the Midas Midas.